Okay. Uh, no pressing announcements other than, um, well, we'll be gone in a week. Well, we'll be here, but we'll be on vacation in a week. And uh, Tuesday night is a uh, session meeting. It is traveling town. I'll be praying for travel mercies. So be safe out there. Uh, the Martins may not make it, depending on the traffic, because, you know, we've got to have our football and clog up the arteries of the highways for important events. We have the call to worship. Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. It is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in man. O taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man that trusteth in him. Bow hearts and heads a sign of preparation for worship. Let us stand and sing, this time for real, 311, 311.
This evening, God above, we ask for your mercy and strength upon us, Lord, that we would focus upon you in the praise of your name, to hear your word brought into our ears and to our hearts, God, that we may live out by the power of your spirit our calling the vocation this week, Lord. Help us, Lord, to be renewed and encouraged therein. In the name alone we pray, amen. You may be seated. We have Psalm 89b, 89b. Um, So we will sing verses 1 through 5.
Amen. Let us pray. We thank you, God, that we can come before you. We thank you, Lord, for the promises here in Psalm 25, God, that you will not forget your mercies, that we can come before you, Lord, asking for the covering of our sins, Lord, that we struggle with day by day. We pray, God, for continued growth and sanctification, that we be more like Jesus day by day, Lord, a little here, a little there. Even if we do fall back, God, we will rise up the seventh time after falling six, Lord, because your spirit is within us, and we do not wish to give up the battle against the world, the flesh, and the devil. We pray for our work situation and ask, God, for those who need better employment, for those, Lord, perhaps who need a better job, help them have wisdom, Lord, and how to deal with... Uh, difficult work situations they are in right now, especially with respect to pay, Lord, that you would give them encouragement, Lord, that you would give them insight and a good providence so that they can change their work situation, Lord. And if not possible, Lord, give them the strength they need, as we read here in First Peter, Lord, to continue to do the right thing, regardless even if they are suffering for doing the right thing. We pray, God, for those who are overworked, and who need better hours, perhaps, God, and indeed for everyone whatever work situation we have, find ourselves in, Lord, uh, that to the extent that they are difficult, Lord, that we can overcome those difficulties, that you would help us to that end, Lord, and that we would persevere, and that, God, we would be good workers, that we would be productive workers, Lord, and that we would control our emotions, God, as best we can, and that we would uh, deal the best we can with unbelievers, to remember and remind ourselves, Lord, to maintain patience, God, for we need the work, uh, we need the money, and we have to often work with people who can be very unreasonable, difficult, Lord, or who have perhaps a foul mouth or something, God. Help us, Lord, to that end, to do what we can for our jobs. We pray, Lord, for stewardship and being wise with our jobs, being wise with the monies and abilities and the land and the things that we possess, Lord, that we possess as things given from you, uh, possess, Lord, things that are ultimately yours, that we are supposed to deal with correctly and aright. We ask, God, that we would... Be zealous to that end, to use these things for your people, for those close to us, for those in need in the church, God. We ask, Lord, that you be with us during our health difficulties. We pray for Linda, Lord, that she would get the surgery she needs quickly, that you would help her get the rest that she needs at the hospital, and she would heal quickly. And we ask, God, for others who have chronic ailments and are struggling day by day, and it comes and goes. We think of Joshua, God, and the family and the Stansberries, Lord, that you would be with them, that you would comfort them, that they, God, would lean upon your mercies all the more, and to know that this world is fleeting, and that there will be a better world in which Joshua will leave for joy with his family. We pray, God, for the difficult time we find ourselves in, again, with COVID, and the leadership that we have here in our counties, God. We are thankful, uh, really, that the state hasn't enforced these things, and although uh, the county is doing such things, Lord, that we can persevere as we can, Lord. We pray again for continued protection of our liberties, uh, the legal situations that are going on back and forth in various and sundry ways, God, that they would, at the end of the day, end up uh, where they ought to be, Lord. We pray for the good of your church. And we ask, God, for those who are high risk, that they would be protected from COVID and other ailments in their life, that they have access, Lord, uh, to protection for high-quality masks that doctors use, uh, for perhaps hand sanitizers or whatever else the case may be, Lord. And may we be considerate for Lord, Lord for those who are at high risk uh, for this uh, odd sickness. We pray, God, that you would be with our families and watch over them and preserve them during this holiday season as they travel to and fro, as some of us and many of us will be going different places, even across the city here, Lord, as we see more and more traffic uh, building up, Lord, and more and more reckless drivers running through red lights, that we would be... Uh, wise, that you would watch and protect us, God, in your providence, 
And we ask, Lord, for our families in particular, Lord, for the husbands and wives to continue to love one another, to do their duties before you because they love you and love each other. The children will obey their parents, Lord, and that we would take care of our own parents, our grandparents, Lord, the aged among us, God, and that the youth, Lord, would stand firm and do their calling before you, Lord, to be helpful in the church and in their family in particular, we pray. Be with our children, God, and with our young adults, Lord, that they would maintain purity, that they would stand firm and do what they are called to do in this world, to have a good vocation and calling in life, Lord, and to plan for the future and prepare themselves to do what they are called to do by the abilities you've given them in your providence. Be with us, we pray this evening, God, that we would continue to learn about your word through First Peter and the sufferings that we have to one degree or another, Lord, to know that you are with us and Christ has suffered before us. In the name alone we pray. Amen. We now have the tithes and offerings. rise. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. We lift the tithes and offerings before you, God Almighty, and we pray for those who have given, Lord, and give what they can, that you put your blessing upon them, Lord, not that they would feel prideful, but that they would in turn give those monies to those in need and back to the church again. We ask, Lord, for these things to be used again mightily in your kingdom. Amen. You may be seated. First Peter chapter 3. Verses 18 to 22. 1 Peter 3, 18 to 22. I got to there much quicker this time. 1 Peter 3, 18 and following to the end of the chapter. Let us listen attentively to the word of God. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but being made alive by the Spirit by whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison, who formerly were disobedient when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight souls, were saved through water. There is also an antitype which now saves us, baptism, not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience towards God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven, and is at the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers having been made subject to him. Let us pray. With these words, God Almighty, we ask that we would have illumination by your Spirit to understand and to be encouraged, Lord, with the theme here that has continued on in chapter 4 of Christ's suffering, and of us suffering, and that Christ is an example of 
one suffering, the great righteous one who suffered for doing good, suffered for doing good, and that we can do no less. In fact, we can because Christ in suffering also had victory, and he was raised up and quickened in the spirit. And Lord, he proclaimed that was his power and brought many unto life and salvation and sits at the right hand of God the Father above. And all powers and principalities are beneath him, including the powers and principalities of the Gentile husbands, the Gentile bosses, and the Gentile nations. And this should be an encouragement to them as it is to us to persevere in our sufferings. In your name alone we pray. Amen. Well, I gave you the sermon in the nutshell, but let me unpack that for you. The difficulties of life are hard to overcome, to be sure. They are real. There is suffering, even in America, although I hesitate to use that word when I think of those in Africa or in China and elsewhere. Like, that's real suffering. But that shouldn't change the fact that there are difficulties in life outside of Africa and Asia. It's everywhere because we are in what? A fallen world. Things are not perfect. And by that, I don't mean to the T. I just mean things are fallen. And the effects are there and real and tangible. Sin has ruined everything. And, but that's the normal state of things, this side of the fall. What makes things worse, however, is when we do the right thing but still suffer wrong. That can be galling. I, I did what you told me to. What more do you want from me, right? And uh, your boss, your neighbor, your family, your government, whatever the case is, uh, still uses you and walks all over you and abuses you. And this is the theme that Peter is dealing with in these verses, as you recall. He is urging Christians to keep doing the right thing regardless of the consequences that don't go your way. It's not just the moral encouragement. Peter is offering specific reasons, and here he offers Jesus Christ himself as a reason. So we can see how Christ, the Messiah, is relevant in what he did So our suffering, and that's what he covers here in verses 18 and following. In fact, so the first point, Christ's suffering, verse 18, is a continued theme in verse 14. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed, believe it or not. Do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. Right? So you have these new Christians, probably ex-pagans with some Jewish influence and instruction and training and proselytes, doing good as citizens. We saw in the chapter 2, right? That's what he starts out with. Obey the magistrates over you. As servants, obey your masters. As wives to husbands, who probably aren't even Christians, but they're getting punished anyways. Even threatened. Because, again, remember, it's a new religion. And back then they took religion seriously. We take religion seriously today as well. We just don't call it religion. It's politics. Lots of politics take the place of religion in America in terms of zeal, in terms of commitment, in terms of their approach to life. It's the bedrock. And so uh, we too today have people who threaten us verbally, who hate us, who trouble us, who are suspicious of Christians. That's exactly what they ran across. Of course, it was worse than what we have today. And he's encouraging them. Doesn't matter. Do the right thing. Submit. One of their concerns, of course, is this new religion is going to say, hey, down with Rome. We're going to have more zealots, they were called in the religious, in the Jewish circles, as you recall. Read about them in the Gospels, the zealots. They're the ones who want to take up the sword and take down Rome. They didn't want that. The husbands are thinking the wives are going to undermine the the family and uh, the authority of the husband and everything else. And, you know, Peter's like, no, 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 no. 
That doesn't change. Being born again doesn't change your natural relationship and the call to submission in whatever domain of life you're in. I highlighted a little bit of that when we preached through those sermons. So this is the background up to where we are now. Verse 17, For it is better if it is the will of God to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. See, he hasn't changed the theme. This is why he's bringing up the suffering of Christ. And then in verse or chapter 4, verse 1, recall again the chapter divisions are artificial. We read, Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh... Right, so he's carrying on that theme. Arm yourself also with the same mind, for he who has suffered the flesh has ceased from sin. He's going to apply, in particular, the lesson of Christ's suffering to the circumstances the Christians find themselves in in the Mediterranean. So that is to say, these verses, verses 18 to 22, are book, they have bookends. Verse 17 and verse 1 of chapter 4, telling you what's going on. That should be the context of describing and giving you the direction of where the words are going to go in between. Unless there's clear evidence in the text where he goes on a bunny trail, which happens with Paul sometimes. But again, it's obvious. You're like, okay, here's a theme. Here's another theme. Here's yet another, and there's yet yet another theme. And he's all excited about Jesus and praises God at the end. We don't have that here, although we have a slight bunny trail in verse 21, which is, uh, we'll we'll cover that. And that's what you see with a... um, I always forget what it's called, dash or a hyphen. There, in many translations. So, this is to build up the context of what is being spoken in these verses. So, verses 19 to 22, in particular, uh, is the suffering argument of Christ in verse 18, unpacked with unspoken comparisons and contrasts. He doesn't say it outright, but they're there. We're going to see that. From suffering to dying to being made alive verses 18 and 19, to victory over sin and sitting on the right hand of God, in verse 22 in particular, with his complete victory over all things. So, let's look at verse 18 and delve a little bit into Christ's suffering. In this first main point, we're still there. I want to detail a little bit about his suffering. He doesn't unpack it, but he knows, his audience knows, because what? They've read, they should have read the Gospels, and they know the life of Christ, of who they believe. I want to know more about Jesus. And they certainly probably learn more like we do. He suffered, of course, as we know, verbal abuse, hatred and conspiracies. Yes, conspiracies by the Pharisees. He suffered physical abuse from smacking to being whipped to being pierced with a spear while on the cross and ultimately suffering the slow death of a crucifixion, an agonizing death. That's the suffering of our Savior from first to last his entire life, and he did it for you. It's a deep truth. We read here, Christ suffered what? Every time you have the Lord's Supper? No. Once. Suffered once. That's it. That's all he needed to do. Four sins. Hinting that we too, I think, will only suffer for a short while. It's only once. And then eternity. He's our pattern here is what is being described implicitly. That's why I mentioned before he has implicit comparisons and implicit contrasts in these verses that become more explicit in chapter 4. And, of course, the suffering once for sins is not his sins, but our sins, the sins of his people. Christ suffered 
the just for the unjust. We're still in verse 18, as you see. One of the great themes of the Bible. Many verses, over and over again. Romans especially comes to mind in chapter 5. The, the godly for the ungodly. Christ for the unjust. The righteous for the unrighteous. That's the gospel in a nutshell. That's the good news. That's Christ's suffering and why he suffered. He suffered for us, we who should have suffered instead for our sins. The just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. And he doesn't say it out loud, but it's clear. Christ suffered for doing good. He did good, and he suffered for it. And the implication, of course, is you're not above your master. You too will suffer. But we don't suffer to redeem ourselves. We're already redeemed. The suffering there is to purge us in our sanctification and become more like him. And he was put to death by the flesh or in the uh, the flesh. We read there the end of verse 18, being put to death in the flesh and being made alive in the spirit or his spirit and in his flesh. There are parallel ideas there in the grammar. Christ actually died is what he's saying. His body obviously suffered and was crucified and he did it for you. And this is the height of suffering that Christ went through. You have suffering, brothers and sisters, Peter is saying, Christ suffered as well and even more. Because he did the greatest thing, which is he did the greatest good, and he suffered for it anyways, didn't he? The just for the unjust. And alive in the spirit. Alive in the spirit. His death in the flesh, that is, he literally died, being put to death for doing the right thing. They had no proper cause. It was a kangaroo court. You know that. And so, again, by implication, lots of implication here, we too will likely suffer to one degree or another for doing good. But alive in the Spirit, now he goes on to a positive theme. He leaves the suffering and goes to being alive or being quickened, as the old KJV has, in the Spirit. And he carries on that theme to the next several verses. It's a contrast with his death for his people. Now he brings power for his people. The Messiah's empowerment by God. As you recall, he's the God-man, and so he's unique. It's not Christ as God as such that needs empowerment. He already has infinite power. He created all things. But rather as the God-man, or the man in particular, who's been given power and authority, the God-man together, because it's always in one person, divine person, Jesus Christ, who has been given something new and unique that is an empowerment in his spirit, renewal in his spirit. He conquered sin and death. That's the God-man. That's the power we speak of. Dead by the flesh, yet alive in the spirit. Dead in the flesh, yet alive in the spirit. Empowered and quickened in his spirit. And in turn, this power is the source of all the salvation, all the good things, all the victories. As he finally says in verse 22, right? He sits on the right hand of God and everything's under and subject to him. And thus, this, this brings us then to the second point, Christ's proclamation, verse 19. By whom also he, he went and preached to the spirits in prison. Now, these verses have a thousand and one interpretations. And no, I did not go through all of them. I, I just, there's no way. I'm not a professional exegete that way. Uh, he didn't pay me to go through every conceivable 
uh, way people have used these verses. One popular take is that Christ went to a place called Abraham's bosom because they, according to that theory, usually in dispensational circles, the Old Testament saints didn't go to heaven when they died. Because, you know, they're not the church. They're a different group of people. That's what dispensationalism teaches. That's obviously wrong. Others say that uh, he preached to angelic spirits, like fallen angels or something. Well, that and all the other approaches are too specific of interpretations that don't have basis in the words here because there's nothing about an abyss here. Uh, There's nothing about fallen angels here as such. Uh, The description of them as demons, as we know elsewhere in the Bible. So people are putting a little more detail into this text and the the, the weight of it can bear. Now I remind you again, what do we have up to verse uh, before verse 18 and after verse 22, but the book ends, the continued theme of suffering while doing good and the consequences and how you can persevere in this. And he uses Christ in verse 18 as an example of one who suffered for doing good. And now he's picking up and going a little bit beyond that before he comes back to chapter 4, back to the idea of suffering. But he's showing him the power of God Almighty, the God-man, as he has been quickened or empowered in his spirit to redeem his people. And that's why he says, by whom also, by whom uh, that is the power of the God-man, Jesus Christ. And so I will go through these phrases here, step by step, reminding us that we interpret Scripture with Scripture, and the immediate context in particular uh, is the more powerful hermeneutical tool, the tool of interpretation. That's why I told you, Here's the, you know, here's the verses before, here's the verses after. You see the words and idea of suffering already in this uh, pericope, it's called, or section of verses that have a similar idea and grammatically related and the like. Since Peter ended with the idea of Christ being quickened in the Spirit, that idea of quickened in the Spirit we read in 1 Corinthians 15, 45. And so it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being, the last Adam became a quickening spirit. Who's the last Adam? But Jesus Christ. And so that's the same verb, by the way, of being made alive. So being put to death, there's a suffering. Most of verse 18 is about the suffering. And yes, you know, Christ, you want suffering, Christ suffered. You want to suffer for doing good, Christ really suffered for doing good. But it didn't stay that way. It went further than that. He was empowered as the God-man. He was made alive in the spirit or quickened as the last Adam to save his people. That's the idea. And so it's by whom also he went and preached or proclaimed to the spirits in the prisons. So he continues with the subject of the domain of the spirit or soul, right? Flesh, Christ quickened in the spirit. And then he talks about the spirits in prisons. And then in verse 20, he says, Noah, in which a few, that is eight souls. He doesn't say eight persons. Well, you could say that, but the word is souls there. So he's talking about the spiritual reality of the power of Jesus Christ as a redeemer. Because the contrast on the flip side, although he died in the flesh, we read in verse 21 about baptism, not the removal of the filth of the flesh. I'm not talking about the body, he says, but the saving of the soul. And so we see him continuing that theme here. Naturally, as you write, we do that. We pick up a theme and we write and we keep using language similar to that theme here. And that's what he's doing here, being made alive in the Spirit. And we have eight souls saved, verse 20, but verse 19 between those, we have spirits in prison. So, 
until, that is, God woke them up. After talking about Christ being empowered in the Spirit, he continues to talk about those not quickened by the Spirit, at least initially, until God woke them up. That is, the proclamation and the spirits in prison who formerly were disobedience, by implication, no longer disobedience, thus throwing out the interpretation that says they must be fallen angels. No, fallen angels can't be, they're fallen, they're always perpetually in disobedience. He went and preached. First of all, I'll tell you, I don't normally delve into the Greek, but this is not the word evangelism. You've heard that word, that's where you get the, that's where you get the word gospel. You can translate that gospelizing. Bringing the good news. Gospel means good news. That's not this verb. This is another verb that could be translated proclaim. Could be preaching, that's fine. But, he, by whom he also went and preached, by whom, as I said, is the quickening of his, of his spirit as the God-man, the Messiah, with the gift of the power from the Father above, to quicken men unto the newness of life. Unto the newness of life. And he went and preached does not mean that Christ went somewhere bodily to preach as such. doesn't have to mean that. And we know this just by the rest of the Bible. In Ephesians 2.17 we read, And he, that is Christ, came and preached peace to you who were afar off and to those who were near. Who are those who are near in the language of the temple? Right, We read that in Acts, we read that here in Ephesians, remember? That's the Jews. What was the mission of Christ? But to the house of Judah, he said, I go. I'm not here to preach to whom? Everyone else, the Gentiles. Remember that, that's the mission of Christ. When he came on earth, he became a Jew. He lived among the Jews. He said, this is my duty, be among the Jews. And even when he deals with uh, Gentiles, it's like in passing. They come across his path. He's not seeking them out. He seeks out the Jews. But yet we read in Ephesians 2.17, He came and preached peace to you who were far off, that is, the Gentiles. As though he was actually there preaching to all the... He didn't preach to all the Gentiles. Who preached to the Gentiles? Christ did a a talk to the centurion or something like that. Even then it wasn't a gospel speaking there. The apostles. The apostles did. Right, The Great Commission, all power has been given to me in heaven, Christ tells the apostles, and on earth. Right, Verse 22 here, First Peter, he sits in the right hand of God, all authorities and powers have been made subject to him. Go therefore, make disciples of all the nations. The word apostle means that which represents someone else. The apostles represent Christ. When they speak, Christ is speaking. So, the Old Testament tells us that Christ would come and preach and save people, even be a light to the Gentiles, as Isaiah says. And yet we know it's the apostles. It's Christ through the apostles that was a light to, the, light to us, to the Gentiles. <clears throat> Spirits in prison. So, it's the quickening power of the Messiah over sin and death in his resurrection. Uh, by which or by whom in that power he went and preached or proclaimed to the spirits in prison. You're like, Pastor, well, how are you going to deal with this one? I didn't mention this before. I missed this in my notes. I'm getting this from John Brown of Edinburgh commentary. For anybody who wants to look up the commentary, you can find it online in the 1800s. He goes through a number of different interpretations and you know counter-argues against them. But I think this is the most straightforward in explaining this text. Spirits in prison. This phrase echoes Isaiah 61. Isaiah 61, verse 1. 
The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. See where I'm going with this? We're already talking about the spiritual dimension, the domain. That's the language he uses. He's talking about souls. Now he talks about spirits and the spirit of the God-man being quickened. And that's those spirits are in prison. That is sinners. They're bound in the prison of their sin. That's the picture of Isaiah 61. Peter and the rest of the New Testament apostles don't just ignore the Old Testament and come up with their new ideas, right? The Spirit of God works in them, and often they're alluding to things of the Old Testament. That's why you learn a lot more of the New Testament when we learn the Old Testament, right? And so we see the parallel idea there in Isaiah 61. One, the spirit-giving power of Christ is given to the spirits of men held in the prison of sin. That's what he's saying in summarized or capsulated form in short order without all those details. That's why I said he speaks of comparisons and contrasts and implications here. So, now we are up to Noah, verse 20. During Noah's time. Why Noah? As you recall, the Bible describes him as a preacher of righteousness. Right? And so I think that Peter is making an unspoken contrast between the preaching and the proclamation of Noah with Christ, who is the life-giving spirit, the last Adam. Christ comes, people are in prison, and they are now firmly disobedient. That is, by implication, they are saved and brought forth from their sins. Whereas Noah, he ends up with just eight people saved. I mean, he didn't have much of a ministry there. So Christ's proclamation, then, by an implicit contrast, is being displayed as that which is efficacious, that which is powerful, in contrast to a man who... Many Jews, uh, you know, the Jewish background and the Gentiles who learned of the Old Testament here, as we think uh, many of the, I think, there is disagreement of the audience that Peter have uh, access to. And he's saying, look, you know, Noah, sure, God worked in him, but Christ is much greater than that. You have suffering, yes, but Christ has overcome suffering. So the implied comparison also in these verses is that you too will overcome at the end of the day, especially when Christ Jesus returns, as we will get to the last verses. Now, how to put all this together? And I think John Brown did a very good ex- example of putting all together in, these, in this sentence here. The sense of these words, that is, by whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison who formerly were disobedient, when once a divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah. How do you get to those who are saved, Christian, uh, you know, unbelievers who become believers, who are redeemed from the prison of sin, to the days of Noah, long-suffering back then, like you're doing a little time machine or a boomerang effect. What's going on here? So listen to the example he gives of another subject. He says, God sent the gospel to the Britons. Right? Imagine... This sentence, God sent the gospel to the Britons, who in the days of Caesar were pointed or painted savages. Catch that? 
You can have that sentence and it makes sense. You're not saying, oh, every person who was saved of Britain was a painted savage, but they were of a people who had that kind of a past. And so he, uh, Brown explains this interesting way of speaking from Peter by Peter basically saying, humans, the human race was saved by God. This is the kind of human race it was, like painted savages or those who were during the time of Noah, which we know was a terrible time indeed, as the Bible describes it, like morally painted savages. The persons to whom God sent the gospel were not the same individuals as such who were painted savages in the example of John Brown, or in this case, of those who lived during the time of Noah, who were so wicked upon the earth that God had to wipe out the the whole world with a flood. But they belong to the same race. And I think that makes the most sense. Instead of some strange, esoteric God trying to bring the gospel to fallen angels or something, or they try to connect it to Genesis 6. So the race of sinners bound in the prison of sin and using the example of the worst of humankind, which is the fall, which is the flood, the era of the flood. The wickedness was so bad. Then Peter goes on. Now we would say more of a bunny trail, not in the worst sense of that word, bunny trail, but this interesting um, sidebar. It's probably a nicer way of saying that, right? Uh, who were prepared uh, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight souls, were saved through water. There is also an antitype, what? The saving through water, which now saves us. So he comes up with a new idea. It's like this kind of like gets his attention, humanly speaking. Like Paul does, although Paul has very long sidebars. <clears throat> but the Spirit of God designed it that way anyways, because the Spirit of God, in inspiring the Word of God, did not dictate it to them like they were secretaries as such, but worked through them such that whenever they wrote these things out, they had their personality and the way they write and, the, and the, the words they use. You see that with Paul especially. Paul makes up words you can't find elsewhere in ancient Greek. Do you know that? Isn't that amazing? Because he's such a smart man. And so it's Paul's way of writing it. The Spirit inspired it. And this is another example of that. So... <clears throat> So, Peter goes on this sidebar about baptism, reminding his audience that baptism does not save the soul as such, right, uh, by implication, because he says, not the removal of the filth of the flesh, not that you wash yourself with it, but with the answer of a good conscience towards God, implying that those who trust in the quickening power of the Spirit, that's how I would connect it, will have a good conscience in spite of their past sins, in spite of their suffering, and baptism helps seal that answer of a good conscience to God, because that's the function of baptism. And I will probably preach more into uh, what baptism is about next time. So verse 22, which is the third point, Christ's victory. From suffering to a quickening spirit to now the fullness of that quickening, which is the victory of Christ Jesus in verse 22. Who has gone into heaven, that is Christ, or verse 21, 22, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven, and as at the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers having been made subject to him. The resurrection of Christ, the power that we have through his resurrection power, because he has overcome death. He's overcome death, it's because he overcomes sin. 
power of sin is death. He's overcome both of them, as we know in 1 Corinthians 15 explicitly. So this is the quickening power of the Messiah, the God-man, vindicated by him, accomplishing his task, both the suffering and the living for us. Death has no hold over him. Suffering has no hold over him is the implication. And also, we too would be resurrected with him. We will overcome. Christ is the chief pathfinder, is the word there. Some of you may recall in Hebrews when I went through that. Who blazed the trail of salvation for us, first through suffering, then a quickening and made alive in the resurrection. We know we're going to participate in that. We too will be resurrected, although it hasn't happened yet. But it has happened, as it were, in our souls. We've been quickened, made alive, and alert to God, and desiring to follow him. The ascension of Christ into heaven at the right hand of God is the accomplishment, the penultimate of his authority and power over all things, implying, in fact, that his suffering is being rewarded. And the reward here is he has power and authority over everything, including the Gentile nations who will mock you and lie about you and make you suffer for doing good, and your bosses and anyone else who will not submit to Jesus Christ. And so from that perspective, it's an encouragement to persevere in your suffering. For Christ, of course, did, to speak humanly, he was human as well, and God rewarded him in a way, of course, beyond us. These verses are here, brothers and sisters, to encourage you to keep doing the right thing regardless if you're rewarded or punished in the here and now, for that matter, in particular. For Christ also suffered for doing good, but his quickening spirit is greater than suffering and will sustain you and raise you up in the last day and vindicate you in Christ Jesus. Let us pray. We thank you, God Almighty, for these words, how Peter went from suffering to victory. And, and Lord, although he doesn't apply it explicitly, Lord, it seems very obvious the implication is that we too would be raised up at the last day with Christ Jesus, and we will be vindicated through him for suffering, for doing good. And this should encourage us, God, not to give up, but to persevere regardless of what the consequences are. Help us to that end, Lord, to be encouraged therein, that we have the quickening spirit of God preached to us while we were in the prison of sin. In your name alone we pray. Amen. Let us stand and let us sing hymn 203 before our Lord and Savior.
Uh, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be upon you all. Amen.